Hey everyone, this is Van Spina from Wall Street Fintech. On this podcast, we cover the tech, systems, and people that run Wall Street. Today's guest is Bob White. Bob's the founder and former CEO of RCA, which is short for Real Capital Analytics. RCA is one of the most comprehensive providers of global commercial real estate data. Bob founded RCA back in 2000 and then grew the business for over 20 years before finally selling it to MSCI for $950 million. If you're interested in data businesses, this is the podcast for you. Bob shares some tremendously valuable insights on what it takes to start and scale a differentiated data business. Thanks for joining Wall Street Fintech. Bob, thanks again for taking the time to speak with us today. Super excited to dig into the founding story behind Real Capital Analytics, but maybe to get started, it'd be great to hear a little bit of the founding story of, of Bob White. So can you take us back to the beginning and you know, where did you grow up? What led you into real estate and ultimately entrepreneurship? Sure, Van. Uh, well, first, thanks for being here. And please cut me off if I drag on. I don't know how you want to start that far back. Me playing with Tonkas as a kid. and <laughs> I always knew I wanted to be in real estate. I thought I wanted to be a developer. I went to the same school as you. We share the same Almada, UVA, and the McIntyre School of uh, Business there. And graduated in 87 at the height of Wall Street. So I went up to Wall Street just to take my fortune and thought I'd be doing that for a little while and then eventually come back to Virginia or Atlanta or somewhere and be the developer I always wanted to be. But I loved New York, loved finance and Wall Street and ended up more on the finance side of real estate than the development side. That's where I guess I really started the, got the earliest ideas for real capital analytics because I could see all my other friends that were in Wall Street firms and whether they were in M&A or muni bonds or whatever they were doing, they had tremendous information about their industry, volume totals, rankings, pricing information on obscure stocks and bonds. And real estate, there is nothing like that. A client would call and ask us what they we thought a office building in Nashville was worth. And literally, we were making phone calls and flipping through back issues of magazines and it would take a week for us to get back to them sometimes. And nobody had any idea this emerging asset class of commercial real estate. Just how big was it? What are trading volumes compared to the other asset classes, such as uh, M&A or uh, private equity and things like that? So that was my first frustration. And that just led me on this quest to quantify the industry as best as I could. So as information became more available through internet, the public side of real estate, REITs and CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed securities. So those two public equity and debt sectors of real estate through a lot more information in the public domain and the ability to capture that efficiently through technology allowed me to create RCA. And so really just started out simply as tracking every deal I knew about or my firm knew about and putting it on an Excel spreadsheet. And so the earliest version of RCA, you, you said you were just tracking the deals that you knew about and your firm knew about putting it on Excel spreadsheet. Was that something you were working on just as a side project with your firm? Or was the idea that this was going to be an independent company and a service? How did you sort of think about the earliest version of what RCA was? Interesting. So I had left, we, I worked at one of the preeminent investment banking firms in commercial real estate. And I left with some of the senior partners and we founded another 
competitive firm, niche kind of boutique investment banking brokerage firm. And as part of that, I went to the senior partners and said, listen, we need to differentiate ourselves somehow. So give me the resources to try to capture this information so that we could talk to our clients a little bit more like investment bankers than brokers and have this information. And as we did that, I could see our clients' eyes light up when we were able to quantify investment volumes and how much foreign capital was coming into the U.S. And I could tell that there was you know, quite a bit of interest. And I think that was helped some of the success of the firm that we started. But it was a very much a adjunct to that business. I did start publishing at that firm some quarterly market reports, which were very well received. But I knew that to really have a for-profit business, it couldn't be just an adjunct of a, a brokerage operation because people are used to getting free information from their investment bankers and brokers. And so that in 2000, I resigned that partnership and started uh, Real Capital Analytics. At the time, it was the height of another tech boom called the dot-com craze at the time. But that was really what led me to start RCA. So th this was going on in the late 90s. You left in 2000 to start this business in the middle of the dot-com boom. Was sitting in the dot-com boom it sort of inspiration or catalyst to leave and start this sort of early version of a tech company? Did that drive some of your decision-making in terms of, hey, it's, we, should, we should go out and, and, and take a swing at this as an independent, potentially tech company? Uh, absolutely. I, uh, you know, there were people that were, becoming dot-com millionaires overnight. And I was like, well, why can't that be me? But I will say I was a little bit late to the game. By the time I started RCA, the dot-coms were starting to fail. And all of them had raised tremendous amount of capital and they had big parties and fancy offices and lots of swag, baseball caps and things like that. And high burn rates and they all burned out. So by the time I got around to starting RCA, the venture capital had dried up. And quite frankly, I, that, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I didn't take all that money and spend it on air on chairs and baseball caps and, and parties. I had to use my own nickel and justify growing bootstrapping it all the way. And even though it was tougher, it allowed us to survive and ultimately thrive. And I maintained control of my company all the way to the end. You leave to start RCA. Where was the first traction? What were those first use cases or data sets that you were able to monetize? Where did you find those early customers? Well, I'll tell you, it was, it was always geared towards an institutional audience and, and brokers, the, the deal makers in the industry. So all the investment brokers, whether it's the CBs or Christian Wakefields or Eastill, the firm I came from, and the big investment banks, as well as the big asset owners. But it was like head of acquisitions and things like that. So it was, uh, you know, pretty easy. I mean, fortunately, you know, something that always helped us throughout the, the life of the company is our own database was our best source of leads because we were maintaining who was buying and selling all this real estate and who were the brokers involved. So we had a great list of who we needed to contact that were the, the biggest players uh, in the industry. And it was very well received because there's really nothing like that. We started tracking the U.S. in its entirety. It was, I'm not sure why I believed we, I was foolish enough to be able to do it, but I'm glad I did. 
because I've seen many other models, whether it was in my space or, or similar spaces of people that would start in a market or a region and then think that they could expand. And it's really tough to do that, especially to expand market by market. Uh, because my client base were people that were sitting in New York or Boston and were doing deals in Dallas and Denver and Miami. So they needed to have full coverage. They couldn't just, they didn't want to have a service in Denver and a different service in Dallas if they were even available. So that was something that we chose to do earlier on. It was a really ambitious choice, but it was the right one. But we were also tracking the institutional assets. So at that time, our threshold for deals was 5 million and greater, which still 5 million was pretty small for a lot of our institutional clients, but it gave us a robust sample size and it was still small enough or easy enough to track that way. It makes sense that when you were doing this originally inside of the brokerage firm that you had access to the brokerage firm's flow and we were, you were able to aggregate that data. But once you left and spun up RCA as an independent vendor, how did you put together this database? Were you just calling friends in the market and asking politely for this information? Or what were some of the sort of strategies you undertook to build out this database? We rode the wave of availability of information on the internet. And so I, I owe a lot to Google, put a lot out there. And so just scraping, aggregating uh, information from news sites and industry periodicals and things like that was a big source uh, of information. And frankly, at that time, if all we were doing was just presenting our clients with everything that anybody else knew that was in the public domain, that was a great service. Hmm. Over time, we were able to become really good at interpreting title records. Title records are not, when I say interpreting, that's it's not just black and white sometimes. The title records are really dirty data, but using that as a source. And then the players in the industry started helping us keep our data clean and vetted. And then whether it was SEC filings from REITs and CMBS, we had to use so many different sources and put them in a database and cross-reference them. And that was the key to our data quality. We had between three and four independent confirming sources on almost every deal. And that was another key to our success. I look at even some competitors in, in recent years that were trying to rely solely on title records or a single source of data, and they would fail miserably. Uh, because a lot of the information just simply wasn't available. Like a cap rate, the yield on a deal is one of the most important pieces of information, and that's not at all available in, in public title records. You, you mentioned when we were catching up a couple of days ago that the earlier versions of RCA was kind of primarily an information business. And then if you look at RCA of today, it looks a lot more like a tech company with a data platform. How did you think about that evolution either originally or over the evolution of the company? So over the, uh, you know, so we started in 2000 and I'd say probably 12 years after that is when we really started thinking ourselves as a, a tech company. So that's when we really, we had a small tech team and we quadrupled it, if not more than that at, at the time and, and just redefined ourselves as a tech team. But really what had happened was in the early days, the data was, the, just having the data was the core value, turning over every rock and looking at 
everything to, to just get that data and having it in a database was the value. In let's say 12, 15 years later, there's so much data available that being a filter for that data and filtering out the bad stuff and only keeping the good stuff being very timely uh, was actually more valuable to our clients. And then using that data in far more sophisticated ways. So whether it's creating indices, price indices, more benchmarking type data, we created a robust business in prospecting, helping people find refinance leads or finding off-market deals, things, use cases that when I started the company, I never would have anticipated would have been such big business lines of ours. We also had expanded instead of focusing primarily on the equity side of the deal, who was the buyer, how much they paid to, well, what was their source of their capital? What's the whole capital stack? Who was the debt? Was there any mezzanine? Who was that? That's still very difficult information to, to track. But when 2009 came and lenders started failing and mortgages started going into default, having that information was tremendously valuable. And so that, again, was a robust set of information we could sell to the vulture funds or the opportunity funds. When you think about all these different data points that you all were collecting, whether it's who was lending on a given deal, the cap rates, prices, volumes, some of the index products, all these different elements of the, the data, were there any that stuck out as most important or most valuable to your clients? Or how did you think about where the highest ROI or best selling you know, elements of your data business were? Getting to the true owners of real estate. The ownership of real estate is incredibly fragmented and you have no idea how many private individuals and family trusts own hundreds of millions of dollars worth of real estate. Uh, and people, particularly foreign investors, go to great lengths to hide their identity. So even the identity of somebody buying a $100 million office building is often tough to find out. And knowing, well, that might be Blackstone, but hey, what's the sovereign wealth fund that's backing them on that deal? So knowing the true identity of the buyers and sellers who owns the assets was a really incredibly valuable set of data that really none of our competitors were ever able to, to replicate. And that took a lot of research. And some of our research team, they're almost like private detectives to get behind those LLCs and really figure out who the true owners and then also link it up so that you could see, well, oh my gosh, this person in Detroit has a billion dollar portfolio of mini storage facilities or whatever it is. But that also helped our clients like private equity clients, if they wanted to uh, get into the mini storage business. So they wanted to find the largest student housing developers in Texas to invest in. They could use our data for that. Um, it was something as simple as that. In fact, I, was, I always said, if just knowing the deal happened and who was involved where it was the most important. Knowing the pricing information is great, but that was, you know, I, cap rates, I'd like to say we had great penetration. I think we, we had best in the industry. Maybe a third of the times we knew the cap rate, good cap rate information on deals. Looking at the story of RCA today, it's pretty clear that it's been a tremendous success. Massive acquisition by MSCI last year, one of the largest providers of commercial real estate data in the world. What were some of the challenges or failures throughout that story or moments where you thought, hey, maybe this isn't going to work out? Early on, there were a lot. I was always, as I said, it was, we were bootstrapped. So it was touch and go for the first 
year or so. But I remember this case study in business school that a company that grew so fast that they went bankrupt. It was like 2007. I think we were growing at 75%, maybe more a year. It was a good number, but it was so expensive. And we were having cash flow problems. Even at that late stage, the company was successful at that period, but I had to liquidate my 401k to the extent I was left in it. And we had trouble meeting payrolls at some point. And that's really when we said, well, listen, we really need to get a outside partner, capital partner involved to, to help finance some of this growth. So that was tough and unexpected because you're a successful company and all, but it's, you still can't meet payroll. Thinking about commercial real estate and in the earlier days before, you know, even today, some of the data is hard to find, but especially in the early days when this data was hard to wrangle, were there operators, lenders, investors, people in the market who didn't want your service to exist? Oh, absolutely. There were a lot of players, big players that felt information was their advantage. Now in the U.S., when we were growing, we actually had the backing of the the brokerage firms that saw we were actually adding value, helping them get to more information than they could with their own teams and doing it more efficiently and cheaper. But as we expanded into Europe, we met with a lot of resistance. The uh, big players over there felt like this was their competitive advantage and why should we come in and, and disintermediate them? Which we weren't disintermediating them, but we were making information data a little more democratic. And But the story there, and I think we finally won them over, one is we showed them that we were going to get the data one way or the other, whether they participated or not. But the data we are providing was, quite frankly, fairly generic data. This transaction happened on this property. Here are the two players involved. The value add of a broker is to know all the backstory of that. You know what? That building had horrible deferred maintenance and it had, was chronically underparked, or all the other aspects of why that building traded the way it did and things that we couldn't capture in our database. Uh, so I think we really helped ultimately brokers do their job better and more efficiently rather than steal the value of just knowing this transaction happened and for this price. We've talked in the past about league tables and how the you know creation of league tables can incentivize players in the market to contribute data. Can can you kind of talk through that a little bit and what's the rationale or the experience that you at, at RCA had? Sure. That was, again, another use case that had anticipated when I started the company. But in it, it was a corollary to getting to the true owners, knowing the identity of all the the players involved in a deal. So knowing the agents, the, the buyer's agent, the seller's agent on the deal became very important. It was also led to a great source of helping us vet the data and make sure it was comprehensive by working with these brokerage firms. They used it, started to rely on it quite a bit. They would use it in their marketing campaigns. They would use it as they're pitching. If they're pitching a deal to sell an office building or a shopping center in Atlanta, they could run the numbers and show that they were the, the number one broker in shopping centers of Atlanta and things like that. So it became valuable to help them in their industry. But at first people thought maybe this was just a gimmick for us to get data. So again, we had to prove to them that we were going to know about this the transaction more likely than not. It's better that they are able to associate their name with it. 
we had to prove that we were going to be great custodians of the data. So we, we did have a number of limits. We had to develop a real rigid methodology that was really fair to all the parties on just some things as simple as what constitutes a sale and who gets credit in, in the rankings and things like that. We encourage brokers to challenge other brokers' deals that they may claim, and that helped police, self-police the industry so that nobody was reporting deals that were false or they were inflating things. But we had to pay attention to that and, again, develop a methodology. So we had to just take it really seriously. That was important because I always looked at the brokerage community as our best clients. They were the canaries in the coal mine. If a broker from CB in Indiana wasn't using our data, there was a problem. They should be able to, to rely on our data thoroughly. And while the ownership of real estate is very fragmented, the brokerage industry is not. It's, hmm. it's even more consolidated than the 80-20 rule. I'd say there are six brokerage firms that account for 75% of all activity in the U.S. and globally. So you need to have them on board and make sure you pay attention. And the other deal was important. It was always an informal handshake at the top of these firms was you help us make sure we have your deals recorded and we won't bother your brokers. We won't pick up the phone every time a deal happens and waste the time your brokers to try to get all that information, which was a criticism we had heard from other firms in the industry that were constantly after the brokers and they had spent a lot of time on the phone relaying information if they even chose to do so. What stopped other players in the market from pursuing this approach and trying to strike up deals with some of the brokers and building out a data set to cover commercial real estate? That is a great question. And I say that the first mover advantage was one of the luck in all of our success is that was something we were able to do first. We did it nationally. We tackled the entire nation. So we weren't just market by market. And then in 07, that's when we went to global. And having a global capture of all the markets was and still is a primary competitive advantage of the firm. And so that was it. But I, I think a lot of it was also being a good custodian of the data, being good and friendly and giving tremendous client service to everyone was so important. And that was a hallmark of our, our company that I think led to our success and helped keep our competitors out. There's a, a known competitor in the industry that isn't well liked by many of the, of its even clients, not, not to mention its competitors. And so it helped us. It was easy for us to be the nice guys in the industry. What was it like running a real estate data business throughout the 08 and a meltdown? Boy, I thought I was at the time that I thought we were potentially could lose it because at the height of the market in 2007, in the U.S., we attracted about $480 billion of commercial real estate transactions in the U.S. By 2009, that had fallen to $48 billion. So literally a 90% collapse in transaction activity. Our clients made money by doing deals. So I thought, okay, this has got to hit our revenue. Plus, Lehman Brothers and all these major financial firms were falling by the wayside. And they were big clients. Lehman was one of our biggest clients, and quite a few of them. But as I said, that's when we realized, okay, through all the channels we were capturing sales, uh, we could also capture uh, defaults and foreclosures. 
So starting to chronicle all the distress that was piling up. And uh, again, we had, uh, were the only ones that were able to do that well, and then know, be able to identify, well, this is the owner of that asset that's in foreclosure. So if you want to, you know, you have rescue capital or opportunistic capital, this is who you should call, proved to be a, a windfall. Again, having an institutional client base was also important because these are people that have $100 million plus portfolios, and they're going to be in it for the long run. Most of our clients had some wherewithal. Didn't mean their budgets weren't constrained, but to some extent at that period in time when very few assets were trading, the value of the information to know what the few assets were trading were priced at was even more valuable. And as the market started coming back, that price discovery was incredibly valuable to all the players in the marketplace. So that's, if I had been a developer like I wanted to be, I'm sure I would have gone bust. Uh, being in the information business, I was able to profit on it. We were still able to grow. We, we, our growth rate slowed, but it was like low double digits. So I can't complain in, in periods like that. But honestly, I really thought that it was going to be a much more significant damage to the company. Wow, that's interesting. So the net impact was that the business still grew throughout the crisis based on the, the value of this information and some yeah. of the rescue financing type data streams? And that's, you know, that's when I started to realize we need to capture the entire capital stack, debt and equity, and track the, the capital flows into the debt side. So that's what led to the whole business of mortgage refi leads and things like that. So ultimately, we became a better company for it. So you're, you're building out these new data products, things like refi leads and covering different parts of the capital stack. What is the go-to-market approach for these new data or business segments? Do you upsell a new contract? Is it a new product that they can kind of add to cart? Or how do you go about pushing these new products to your existing client base? Because I'd imagine at this time in the market, you probably had pretty decent penetration amongst the big institutional players. We did to the extent, and especially like the brokerage firms, I'm not sure we could be any better penetrated. So yeah, the easiest thing to do was focus on upsells. So whether it's like adding the mortgage data was a significant upsell. Uh, we did start expanding to some of the uh, called alternative property types like mini storage or things like that, that we hadn't really manufactured housing. Things that were in the commercial real estate, but weren't the five or six main asset classes. And uh, doing things like that. But we always tried to have every year some type of upsell that our sales team could go, our renewal team could go and try to grow revenues. And always, you know, we, I would say, uh, Upsells were always probably about 60% of our, our increase in revenues and new business, maybe 40. We changed that at the very end. And that was probably a late learning was we probably should have had a, a bigger new business, new business sales team. It's funny, you had sales, people, you had sales. But we started to appeal to, we had to, so we lowered our threshold from that 5 million initially down to ultimately under two and a half million in the U.S., which doesn't seem like that much, but it was literally a tripling of the amount of data we were capturing. And that allowed us to, to broaden our market to not just be big institutional clients, but regional clients, larger local players and regional banks and, and things like that. So that helped to attribute some of the new logo business. 
part of this model is that you're aggregating data from these large brokerage firms and institutional players, then you're also selling them the aggregated data. Did that dynamic ever cause conflicts where, for example, a broker came to you at Renewal and said, hey, I'm going to stop giving you my data unless you cut your prices or stuff like that? Well, it didn't, no. And because they weren't our primary source, they were just one of many sources of data. So whether it's title records or SEC filings or our own research otherwise and everything else that was in the public domain. So as I said, we had three or four different sources. Brokers would be oftentimes a confirming source on that. And they could give us their data confidentially and we would keep the deal confidentially unless we learned about it from another source. So that really never became an issue. But again, I think, you know, there's a heritage relationship, the first mover advantage, the data firms that I see now that are coming out and trying to form consortiums of base data have a little more trouble because the firms are, you know, uh, have been asked many times to contribute their data to different things. And they realize, you know what, they shouldn't be giving away anything for free at this point. And, you know, the other thing is, uh, especially with the brokerage firms, uh, it was a big source of contention within our firm about whether what we should be charging them. But I always made sure that they got a great value for the money. They never felt like it was that we were overcharging them. We limited our increases. Again, we treated them very well because they were important constituents of the market. Tell me about the derivatives business. So... This is uh, probably one of my biggest frustrations uh, that we uh, failed to accomplish. But real estate is the biggest asset class that you can't hedge. You know, there's no structured product marketplace, and it should. You know, if anything, it's it's you know it's a long and expensive process to buy or sell real estate. And if you could do that synthetically through hedging or shorting or puts or whatever, it would be fantastic. And in the Probably about 2005, 2006, we started working with some fantastic academics, primarily from MIT, to create a repeat price index for commercial property. And so it'd be like the premier price index for commercial property, the first of its kind. And we did successfully in the U.S. There were about 15 regional and property type indices, and they were primarily created to underlie a, a derivatives marketplace. And we were working with a number of well-connected players on Wall Street. And there's, you know, in 2007, most of the big firms had, had hired a property derivative specialist. Everybody was building up for this marketplace. And our index was a prime one posed to be underlying all these hopefully billions and trillions of dollars of indices. So at that time, that was when we took in the first outside capital, we decided to spin the uh, derivatives business and license out into a separate entity and recapitalize that more with some Wall Street players. And then I took in some outside capital to fund RCA's growth. And at the time, uh, the derivatives business was valued at twice what my mm-hmm. core business was. Unfortunately, with the uh, you know financial disaster that came in subsequent years, you know, structured products, real estate, nobody had an interest in either. And, uh, you know, there's still no derivatives marketplace for real estate, but I'm sure it's going to happen. I'm just, you know, sorry, I wasn't 
able to to be a part of it or much less profit from it because I thought that was going to be one of the most exciting things about everything that we were doing. And it was a fun time, but uh, I'm sorry we weren't able to get a trade done. I was going to say maybe if you were a little bit earlier, some of the players going into 08 would have been a better head, but the reverse is probably actually true where they would have just been more highly leveraged. Yeah. And I think we were focusing on the equity players doing the hedging and we should have been focused on the debt players, the banks and others to offlay some of the risk that were embedded in their mortgage portfolios because they're the ones that really got Hurt. And like, look at right now, the regional banks, if they could have, you know, hedged some of the risk they have to commercial real estate, their stock probably wouldn't be hit as hard as it is right now. And to dig in a little further on some of the index products, what does the index business model look like? Are you just aggregating a sort of benchmark and selling the brand or, or how does that business actually work? So it's a, uh, well, one, I loved it because it's basically just applying some high level math to our existing data, resulting in a new product that you can sell. So, you know, very high margin business. Uh, and, you know, although the, the high level math is, you know, pretty sophisticated and, and we pioneered some real advancements in it, which I'm, which I'm still very proud of. So the, if there's a derivative marketplace, there are a couple of different revenue models we had chosen to to go for one where we would have taken basis points off of the notional value of every trade which wow. would go for the real moonshot there so that was exciting but there are other models where you just simply license it to others for a fixed fee that wouldn't be as lucrative but that was an option particularly in the early days to try to get some critical mass involved Ultimately, the indices probably developed low seven-figure revenue associated with the, the indices as an informational product. And ultimately, there were over 360 indices, and people could use them to look at the correlations of movements between markets and the volatility of price movements in markets and some real interesting things that are valuable in portfolio construction. So as an informational tool, they had value. And for that, it was just a, again, another upsell as part of our subscription pricing. Yeah. I've heard that in other sort of asset classes, index products become really sticky when the investors in the market start to benchmark their portfolio to their LPs, because if they change the benchmarking metric, it starts to look a little suspicious. So they're very reticent to do so. Absolutely. I still think that there are other products that could be developed off of that, that never got a chance to pursue more fully. I think that, uh, like I was always interested in creating a mark to market product. So, mm-hmm. you know, you get an appraisal at the time of a financing or, a, any type of transaction. And with these indices, you know, we could literally mark an asset to market on a quarterly basis over the term of that loan or within other portfolios, like private REITs that are constantly having to revalue their assets, there would be some application. So that's a a product that I always had in the offing, uh, but never got to before selling the company. What's different about starting and running a data business compared to a more vanilla vertical SaaS business? So I would say that it maybe is a little bit longer to get the critical mass of data rather than just building and pioneering the the software. Implementation is 
not nearly as significant. We had an interest in a SaaS business and I've invested in some SaaS businesses. And, and what's always frustrating to me is how implementing that software throughout an organization is really tough. And then working hard to make sure that company adapts to it so they keep using it is even more difficult. Data is a little bit more instantly addictive, particularly in real estate. But I think whether it's private equity or many financial markets, people are deal junkies. They want to know what's going on, who's buying what, who's selling what, how much money they make or lose. Uh, you know, so, so just that in itself, I think, is addictive and it's necessary. I think it's easier to manage, monitor the usage of the data. We had very sophisticated ways to monitor our clients' usage of all the different types of data and products that we had, which really helped us not only in pricing and pricing renewals, but also in product development, you know, where we should focus, uh, you know, improvements and, and things of that nature. Uh, so I think it was a little more transparent that way, because oftentimes in the software, particularly when a company starts embedding it, you really it's tougher to monitor the usage aspects of it. I think probably the biggest thing is, you know, software can get old and antiquated very quickly unless you continue to invest and keep it up. Now, data, it's expensive to keep it up. Data is constantly flowing in. So, yeah, it gets antiquated or there's always some value to the historic data, but you don't have to, you don't have that ongoing capital improvement to make sure that you're outrunning the advancements in coding and technology. Like right now, everybody's outrunning the whole AI and having to invest tremendously to make sure whatever SaaS offering they have is not going to be obsolete in a year from now. Is there a ramp up period where you sold a new customer, but you need to educate them on how to use the data or what they can use with the data? Or was this type of information, um, obvious for, for the customers. So one of my early mistakes was that, you know, you just show them what data that you have and it's obvious to them how they can use it. And mm -hmm. it was, it's much more, you sell solutions, you got to show them how to use it. We had a client service team that spent a lot onboarding our clients because again, we are so vested in them renewing in subsequent years. And we had big warning flags if they, their usage patterns weren't at this level within three months, six months, nine months, we had a team on there, whether it was doing webinars or if necessary, doing office visits to make sure that they knew how to maximize the value of their subscription from us. And again, it, it was a building a long-term annuity, invest early on and we had a well over a 90%, more than the mid 90% renewal rate, which was fantastic, almost too high, some would argue, in the industry. How did you protect the data? Like, for example, the SaaS company, you close their account and they can't log in anymore. But with data, what do you do to stop someone from exporting the data and sharing it with peers or competitors or somebody like that? That, uh, fortunately, we didn't ever have any huge problems primarily because we were dealing with a well-heeled institutional audience that have big compliance departments and things like that. But it was increasingly becoming a problem, you know, with the more, you know, mandate our clients had to use data science and now AI. And, you know, once your data is out there and into its algorithm, it's no pulling it back for the most part. Uh, so it was tough. 
uh, I, I guess to some extent I depended on, you know, we could always cut them off if we do there, there is an issue and the data does get stale over time. So two years from now, they only have data that was two years old. So it would be worthless to them. But honestly, it was uh, increasingly uh, a problem. And it was a big source of debate in our company, how much we wanted to spend to police that. I always was a little bit more trusting. We had instances where, you know, somebody in Australia, somebody working for a client in Australia was able to figure out a way to download a huge part of our data set. And I'm like, well, we should thank that guy for showing us the <laughs> hole. And thankfully he works for a client that was going to be responsible with it. But at least we know we can monitor. Monitoring usage is another way. So when you see extraordinary usage and downloads of a client, then you know something's going on there. You ended up raising another round of outside capital in 2019 mm -hmm. and then ultimately exited the business in 2021. What was the rationale for the fundraise in 2019 and how did the acquisition come about in 2021? So in 2019, we took on some uh, capital from two great private equity firms. I was led by Susquehanna, who's an amazing growth uh, equity investor. And we were growing fast. There had been some other benchmark deals in the industry that helped kind of site, set a pricing benchmark that helped facilitate the deal. I wanted to take out that investor, that earlier investor from 2007 and recap them out. And we really wanted to, to grow and also to set the company up for an ultimate exit because, you know, uh, well, you know, I just was always looking at that. I wanted to make sure whenever I wanted to get out that I had a, a good management team that I wouldn't have to stay around for the transition. And we really needed to build out our C-suite. So we took on this private equity, which was smart. It allowed us to grow. I also say that the more successful the company got, the, the more averse to taking risks I got, you know, because so much of my wealth was tied up in, you know, I just had more to lose. Uh, and all of us did at the company. So we became more risk averse when we should have been exactly the opposite. You know, we were older, we were smarter, we were successful. We should have been taking more risks and growing uh, fast. So that's why we started using some other people's money. But it was more than that because they were so smart and they helped us operationally in so many different ways. They helped us hire in some really key positions like chief revenue officer and helped us bridge some gaps in technology and a key product positions. Just help us really put together a strong management team and something that's a little bit more industry standard and scalable. And they gave us the wherewithal to embark on a series of acquisitions. We you know, knew that the industry was still fragmented, particularly globally, which was our competitive advantage. And I wanted to make sure that if somebody was buying up some of these companies on a global basis, it was us and not one of our competitors. And so we did. We bought uh, made a number of acquisitions, a big one in Sweden. We opened some more offices, one in Sydney and uh, expanded that way and just did uh, a number of more things. Like I would never have done a $70 million acquisition in Sweden if I didn't have a team of really smart people that were held our hands throughout that M&A process behind us to do that. But it was one, probably one of the smartest things we did. And so we did a lot in that short period, that two years. And surprisingly, the market was really hot. We, in hindsight, we sold it 
probably the, the very peak of the market, September 21. And while when we originally took the capital, we thought it was going to be more of a three, five, seven year play. It ended up only being two years and it was a great execution. There are a number of big strategic people in the financial information arena. I really was proud to be able to sell the company to another much larger information provider across all asset classes. So to be able to put information on the real estate asset class now up along other asset classes in benchmarks was a long-term goal of mine. So it was a, a good execution that way. And so it happened pretty quickly. I was surprised it was, and I was actually particularly surprised that the value of the company grew so quickly during the whole COVID period. Um, Susquehanna should uh, clip this segment and put it on their testimonial <laughs> on their website. <laughs> Uh, but no, it was great. I was, I will tell you that a lot of, you know, private equity gets knocked for a lot. They can add, and they certainly did here add a lot of value in emboldening us and helping us get to the next level. Cause truly it was a, you know, four X over four X uh, return over those two years for all of us. So. And what does that strategic exit look like? Did MSCI knock on the door one day and say, we want to acquire you or were there a group of, you know, to the extent you can share, was there a group of providers that started or potential? Uh, we, we ran a process. We ran a process. Uh, you know, earlier that year, I think there was a, a trade of something and, uh, you know, started talking to the board. Uh, was a conversation probably early in that year of what we thought the company might trade for if we sold it. And, and it was a pretty astounding number. I'm like, well, I'm a seller at that. Uh, <laughs> and... It was time. The company was really getting big. It had the right management team in there. It was a lot different from the early days of RCA. And uh, so we hired a banker and it was a very competitive process. And MSCI emerged as a, a clear leader. And the execution was phenomenal. It was certainly ended up trading beyond what our initial expectation was by quite a bit. So can't complain about that. Yeah, they seem to have been to have continued to be uh, aggressive about M and A. They just announced an acquisition of, of Burgess last week. They already owned a third of the business, but just acquired the other two thirds for seven hundred million dollars or something. And that's, like that. that's a good business because you know, like real estate, it's a private asset. It's all about private assets, and uh, so I think it's actually going to have some real good. Uh, uh, synergy with the real estate business and some good overlays and learnings that each can learn from each other. So you had a tremendously successful exit after building this company up over 20 years. What's what's life like post-exit? Well, I've kind of become the developer I wanted to be on a smaller scale, building some spec houses down here in Florida, uh, sitting on the board of... Uh, you know, a couple of things, a couple of companies, some smaller early stage tech companies, uh, an advisory <coughs> board for a uh, one of the prop tech uh, funds. Uh, so I still, you know, engaged in the industry that way. Uh, and I uh, started a, a center for real estate at the University of Virginia, which I've been real active in, in getting that off the ground. And that's been very fulfilling. So it's keeping me busy and it's certainly different from running the the big company and, but I don't necessarily miss flying all over the place as much as I was. And I'm glad to see 
the company continued to be a success. And quite frankly, there are so many key people that are still at the company even two years since, and everybody's been treated well. So I feel like I left the company in really good hands, even though you know it, it was my baby. So it's funny, investment banking slash commercial real estate brokerage to 20 years of entrepreneurship, billion dollar exit to finally becoming a real estate developer. It's kind of a circuitous path, but I'm glad you finally got there. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, been fun, but you know, let's hope this is where I'm not going to lose all my money. Because I'm pretty sure if I had been a developer, I would have already. It's That's the one thing with real estate. It is more boom and bust than any other industry out there. And so... Uh, but it's fun. It's uh, right now in South Florida. It's it's still boom. When you look at the fintech and prop tech landscape today, where do you think are the most interesting opportunities? I think that uh, construction te- tech is a really interesting area. That whole process has just been for streamlining and just more technology embedded into every aspect of that because you know, the communication between so many different parties uh, and the lead time and the, you know, uh, is uh, so significant. So I'm bullish on that sector. I think anything that can foster affordable housing, which is certainly a, a big issue, a crisis in, in the U.S. So whether that's modular construction or some fintech models that are trying to make home ownership or housing more affordable, I think those uh, have the opportunity to be uh, successful, um, you know, but I'm always amazed at the different ideas that people have come up with and it's exciting. It's, there's so many aspects and niches, still so much opportunity, particularly in real estate. And I think still more in the real estate industry than almost any other industry. My thought process in this and why real estate's always lagged behind in tech adoption is because that it is more cyclical than any other industries. And the boom and bust cycles have been tough. Just as people get the money and start thinking about adopting to technology and can afford to do so, there's a big bust. And all of a sudden, initiatives like that get uh, uh, thrown aside and uh, they can't take advantage of it or they don't until much later when the cycle recovers. Speaking of, of booms and busts, you mentioned AI a couple of times throughout this conversation. Overrated, underrated, any specific use cases that you're interested in or paying attention to? I, you know, jury's still out, still looking at it. Uh, you know, there is a holy grail in commercial real estate to create a automated value model, valuation mm-hmm. model, ABMs. So in the housing market, they've been around for a while and they're fairly well calibrated. They're not perfect, but there's tremendous more data, millions and millions of more data points in, in housing to, to feed these models and help them be more accurate. In commercial real estate, the assets are far more different from each other. The lease structures, it's not just the physical attributes or the location, the lease structures are different. You really need to know so much more to be able to value a piece of commercial real estate. So I'm still a skeptic whether or not technology is ever going to be able to automate the valuation of real estate. I think it can help, but I don't think that it'll ever be like a a Zillow for commercial real estate. Uh, I'm just not so sure, but there are a lot of people trying, so I could be proved wrong. Do you think some of those elements are why we haven't seen derivatives in this market take off in a meaningful way? Yeah, I think that, you know, is possibly the case. 
but even I mean, I think people want to lay off mac more macro exposure. And mm -hmm. there was there's a derivatives marketplace or had been a more robust one in the UK. And surprisingly, people were just trading on an all property type national index, which doesn't let let you get more granular. It's not like I could short multifamily in Miami and go long in Manhattan, which I think would be a interesting use case. I'm not sure that that's been the obstacle. That That's one reason the repeat sales methodology of the index is supposedly eradicates a lot of the noise that's caused by the differences in quality and locational aspects of real estate. Because you're looking at the, the value changes between one app. <laughs> excuse me, between the same asset, but then multiple, you know, uh, data points like that. Closing question for me, but if you had to restart your career from scratch tomorrow, what would you do? Oh gosh, I'm not sure that there'd be much that I would change. I had a, a great time throughout. I always learned when I came into the market was right before the SNL debacle, the first market crash, so a down cycle. So you learn a lot in the down cycle. And that was a very valuable learning experience, <laughs> even though it was tougher to get a job. You have to have a global perspective. And I, you know, that was something that when I went to college, I never envisioned that I'd end up with a global company. But almost everything these days is, takes a global perspective or global worldview. I think everybody going to college needs to spend a semester abroad. If at all possible, spend a year, get a transfer to some foreign location for a year if you can, I, I think, or just travel as much as you can. I think that's really important. Maybe, yeah, sure, I would have taken a few more vacations, things like that. that that's valid, too. Maybe to, to phrase it a little bit differently, if you woke up tomorrow on August 25th, 2023... You know, knowing all that you've known now, but RCA is already built and acquired by a different company and you were to sort of take a swing again, you know, where, where would you look for opportunity to try to build something new? Oh, I'm still looking for another data play because uh, yeah. it can be so lucrative and such a good, you know, business model. There are a few things I'm looking at. Very cool.